0: Scripture this morning is from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 13. Please pray with me. Father, be with us this morning uh, as we hear your word. Open our hearts, open our eyes and our ears to hear uh, and to know uh, what you're telling us this morning. All right? Feel us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater so is my word that goes out from my mouth it will not return to me empty but will accomplish what i desire And achieve the purpose for which I sent it you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands instead of the thornbush will grow the pine tree and instead of briars the myrtle will grow this will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed this is the word of the Lord
1: thanks be to God indeed where were you on 9-11 I was living in New York a few weeks before 9-11 my fellowship group at my church we went out on a Friday night we went to windows on the World. we sat up there looking out at the city and taking in what felt very permanent very secure very stable and a few weeks later that building was gone New York was devastated the city lost thousands of lives. Imagine that a few months ago in Ukraine, people would have birthday parties. They would celebrate marriages. Life would have been full of family gatherings, of arguing about silly things, of rejoicing and celebrating together. Today, buildings are being destroyed. Cities are being wiped out. There are over three million refugees Families are being ripped apart. When we read Psalm 50, uh, Isaiah 53, we are looking into, from the point of view of the Israelites, the Babylonian exile. They're about to be pulled from their home. They're about to be separated from their families, from their land, from their crops. What sustained them, what gave them identity, what gave them purpose is about to be taken away from them. And as they look forward into that, What used to be secure, what used to be permanent, is falling out from under their feet. Life and death crises have a habit of focusing the mind to help us see what is truly important. And this text asks a big question. We begin in verse 2 here, looking at that really big question. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour and what does not satisfy. Now bread is a staple. When I was hiking through Nepal, I learned a little bit of Nepalese. I was there for a couple of months and did some long hiking in the mountain. And as part of the Nepalese, I learned the greeting for hello. And the word for hello, or how are you, or how's your day going, in Nepalese literally trans- to, translates to have you had your dal bat today? They're really asking, have you had your little bit of sustenance, your bread, your equivalent of bread? Have you had your staple for the day? Is your day grounded in the food which is going to keep you going? And of course, in our passage here, this idea of bread is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for what defines, what shapes, what uh, gives definition to, what gives sustenance to us in a deep Rich, personal sense. And now most of us, of course, have our dull butt. We, we're above subsistence level living. We are uh, not eking by. We're not wondering where we're going to get our next meal. We're not sitting in hunger. But that doesn't mean we don't resort to these habits of thinking, where's the not bread that I can use to satisfy me? We're still drawn into the marketing culture. We still think that if we get that car, or if we buy that shirt, or if we're wearing those shoes, or if we've got that watch, we're going to be more than, we're going to define ourselves, we're going to be satisfied, we're going uh, to have a sense of fullness from that. And this text really is saying that why spend money on the not bread, or the no bread, on the things which don't sustain, and why do you spend your your labor on things which do not satisfy. Having a direct, a direct attack really on the things that we use to build our identity. That direct attack on the things that we think are permanent and give us security. Now, my daughter is applying for a college uh, experience at BU uh, between her freshman and junior year and she had to write an essay about why she wanted to do it. And when we read that essay we were Uh, we, we got a better understanding of what it's like really to be in middle school. She talked about the pressure of coming from a school with just 14 people and going into a large crowded school where people defined you by your type of shoes or the haircut you wear and what did it mean to conform and all the peer pressure and all the difficulty of navigating those first years of school and looking for approval and trying to find your identity in what comes from the outside. And you might think, oh, that sounds very middle school-esque. When I was in seminary, a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff, who ended up being a pastor at another local church, him and I would often laugh at how people would come to us and say, as Christians, we're buying this house, and it's really big, and it's really expensive, but we're really buying a big, expensive house simply because We want to do ministry in it and I'll be honest we had a little bit of judgment in our way of thinking there and then of course we all graduated and him and I bought houses which were about as big as we can afford and we're no longer living on that same sort of mindset as him and we're like what is going on here why do we buy into the hype and it's not just the big things like houses. About 10 years ago I thought I need to get fit, I just need to go out and start running so I said, I know what I need. To do this, I need a dog. We have had two dogs, and I still haven't started running yet. Then I thought, you know what I need to do this? I need a watch, I need one of these fancy watches that tells me how, how far I'm running, how fast I'm running. That will make me run. I have two of those watches. A couple of weeks ago, or well, a couple of months ago, a couple of years ago probably, I thought, what I really need to do is join a gym. And I can promise you, the only thing that got any lighter enjoying the gym was my wallet. So we have these ideas that we can somehow purchase these changes, purchase pieces of identity in our lives. The world keep on asking more and more of us. The world keeps on upping the bidding, pushing the price of who we want to be higher and higher. And these things hit at our sense of who we are when we get our identities as the bread of this world. Now, I am a husband, a father, a pastor, a counselor, a friend, an intellect, an athlete, a musician. Okay, we're getting a little, we're pushing it as we're getting down the end of the spectrum here. But I have some identity in all of those spaces. But how do I, and I'm sure many of you have similar identities, how do we deal with the fact that In each of those places, I sin. In each of those places, I'm limited. In each of those places, I'm broken. How do I hold my identity together when, really, as a husband, a father, a pastor, a counselor, a friend, and we'll let the others fall off the end, in all of those places, I'm confronted by my my sin, my limitation, and my brokenness. My identity doesn't feel complete. To have enough or to be enough by the world's standards is exhausting and it's conflicting. And here's a test for you. How many of you live in God's abundance? How many of you can't wait for the weekly Sabbath when you can rest, when you can delight in the Lord, when you can celebrate in his creation, when you can look back and say, Oh, what you're doing in me is good work, just like what you did in creation is good work. How many of you live into that Sabbath with delight, live in God's abundance in that way? How many of you are saying, 10% tithe? That's nothing. I've got abundance, God has blessed me with so much. Yeah, I can do the 10% tithe and I can give and I can be generous way beyond that. I can find ways of blessing other people because I live in the margin and the abundance that God has given me. How many of you, when confronted, how many of you here, put your hands up, if you are a husband or a wife? All right? Leave your no hands up. <laughs> Leave your hands up if you are completely satisfied with the way you husband or wife. If you have no problems or concerns about the way you do that. How many of you are fathers or mothers? Put your hands up. Put your hands down if you're just like, man, I've nailed this. I live out this identity perfectly. There's nothing I do as a parent which which I think I wish I hadn't done. My sin and my limitation does not get in the way. Not too many of you. All right, as a career, in your career. How many of you say, I'm so complete in my identity and whatever I do in my career. I never sin in this context. I am not limited in any way. I am not broken. Hands up. None of you have hands up. All of you have significant problems wrapping your identity up in these things of the world, the bread of this world. So what's the alternative to the non-satisfying bread that's offered here. What's the no bread? What's the opposite to the no bread? What is the bread? What is the sustenance? What is the peace that God is offering here in this passage in Isaiah? If junk food of this world doesn't satisfy the soul, what bread do we need? So let's jump down to verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways my ways. my thoughts are not your thoughts, your ways are not my ways. Now first of all that your ways piece is talking about goodness, morality, doing what's right, knowing how to live in a way which is righteous. And God is saying the way you do it and the way I do it is completely different. If you leave, if you start eating the bread of this world, you're going to miss the mark by so much. We are in different zones, different planes, different understandings. I am more moral. My way is higher I am gooder, my way is higher than yours. And likewise, this idea of thoughts, I am wiser, I am smarter, I know more, I understand more, I put it all together. I am wiser, my thoughts are higher. How much? Well, if you go back to verse 8, you'll see, They're not even in the same ballpark, not even in the same league. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. If you think you can do this on your own, if you can think you can work out what is good, what is moral, what is right, in that deep sense of righteous walking like God offers, you can't. If you think you can know, all the answers if you can think you can find the solutions if you think you have a path before you that that just makes sense and you can make it happen the way you want it to happen you can't you are not as wise as God it's as a different league it's as far apart as the heavens are from the earth you see in verse 9 so that's one thing God is more moral more complete more righteous God is wiser smarter knows more and those things are great but He then riffs, really, in verses 10 to 11, and he just brings it home. He nails it really hard. He uses this idea of not only am I morally something that's out of your understanding, not only is my understanding and my wisdom outside of your comprehension, so is my ability to make things happen, my power, my omnipotent, omnipotent presence. He talks about the rain and the snow, and he says, when I say something, it happens. When I say it's going to be, it really happens. When I write the story, it plays out the way I write it. He talks about when the rain comes down from heaven, it doesn't come back until the crops have been watered, until the crops have been nurtured, until the ground has been made soft. It doesn't come back until it's done what I've sent it to do. And my word is like that. When I send my word out to write the story, what I write really happens. And there's a comparison in here. He's saying, my word accomplishes what I want. I am powerful. I define. I write history. And I want you to answer the comparison. How do you do with that? How do you do writing your own stories? Do you have the power to satisfy completely? Do you have the power to narrate your own life completely? Do you have the power to define yourself, to find the identity you want completely? You do not. And he's saying, come and eat my bread. My bread, my bread completes. My bread fulfills. My bread gives you an identity without limitations or brokenness. Now what does this mean? What does it mean when he says, eat my bread, live in my story, be defined by me? What is he talking about here? It sounds good, but what on earth is he talking about? How do we do this? Well, we see that by jumping back to verse 3. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Now the invitation here is to an everlasting covenant with God. Covenant is a big word, it sounds so legal. And there is legal aspects to it, but it's helpful to think of these in the two covenants that made the most sense in the Old Testament. And they both give us one aspect of this covenant that we're being invited into. One is the marriage covenant, which is one of intimacy, of closeness, of delighting in, of wanting to see become and to flourish. And the other is one of the king. Now we have these horrible pictures in our heads of middle-aged kings running around Europe uh, basically who are self-indulgent, looking after their own interests and taking advantage of their citizens. That was not the role of the king in the Old Testament. Kings in the Old Testament had a responsibility to see their people flourish. Their job was not to be self-indulgent. Their job was to be people-oriented, to make flourish. And we see in verse 5 the implications of coming into this covenant, this intimate covenant, and this covenant with this powerful ruler who gives us rules and gives us parameters which help us flourish, this this bridegroom and this king picture of God, as we're invited into that covenant, we see in verse 5, it's particularly powerful if you're an Israelite just about to go into exile in Babylon. Surely you will summon the nations you do not. After you've entered into this covenant, God says, surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. What we're seeing here is the overturning of what happened in Babylon. What's about to happen to them, God is saying, no, you will be raised up. You will be, I will endow you with splendor. So there's this picture of coming into this covenant uh, with this imminent threat of Babylon, which is going to happen, and we know it did happen. But God is saying, no, if you walk in my abundance, you will experience something even more profound, more big, more complete than what's going on with Babylon. There's an undoing, a correction, a reversal of the Babylonian suffering. And I will bless you. I, I will endow you with splendor. And that sounds pretty profound in itself, right? There's a satisfying... There's an identity, there's a move through suffering there. But if you jump down to uh, verses 12 through 13, and you see just how profound it is to be in the covenant, and it was part of our worship service earlier today. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of thorn bush will grow juniper. There will be fruit berries to eat. Instead of briars, the myrtle will be grown. There will be things which you can use for healing and for for salve. This will be the Lord's renown. Wait a minute. This will be the Lord's renown and it will endure forever. So not only is he saying he'll endow us with splendor, he's also saying that in the reversal, the undoing of all this suffering, the correction of all of the 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 pain that's happened. He's putting his reputation on the line. God is hitching his reputation to your glorification. That's a pretty big deal. He's putting his reputation on the line. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you were going to fail school and someone says, I guarantee you I put my reputation on the line that you won't fail school. I will do whatever it takes to make sure you don't fail school. Not only do they say that, but they can deliver on that. Or, you won't get fired from this job. I guarantee you, I will make sure that the outcome is that you won't get fired from this job. No one can do that. Who can say that I can protect every friendship you have? No one can do that. Who can say that I can make sure your marriage doesn't fail? No one can do that. No one would put their reputation on the line. I would never do that for you. I couldn't do that for you. I do not have the goodness, I do not have the wisdom and I do not have the power to do that. God is saying I do. I am willing to put my reputation on the line for your glorification. Now it's not in terms of just the things that we, it's certainly not about the bread of this world. We've talked about eating this bread? How do you get into the, the, this idea that this bread, this sustenance from God is something bigger? That this covenant somehow gives us more? But how do you get into this covenant? How much does it cost us? Now, we've seen that the world haggles. We saw that in verses 1 to 2, where he's saying, come, or you are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy Wine and milk without money, without cost. So somehow you can buy these things without money or cost. What is he talking about here? Well, chapter 55 of Isaiah is really the response to chapters 53 and 54 of Isaiah, which talks about the suffering servant. And what is the key piece of the suffering servant? He will be pierced for our transgressions. Yes, there is a huge cost. A huge cost is paid for us to enter in this covenant. It is not small, it is not cheap, it's not insignificant. It's the price of Christ suffering on the cross. There is a substitution that goes here. It's bought with the self-sacrifice of the servant. Now, we also come and buy it somehow. So what does that mean for us? The world tries to bargain you up. Spend more, be more learn more, project more. God actually tries to bargain you down. It's nothing. Stop trying to bring things to get things for me. But in the nothing, in the nothing that you have to bring to enter into this covenant, by definition, you have to bring everything. Now, does that make any sense? We read through a few of those verses. Do you know what word appears most in this? Come, 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 come. Followed by listen, listen, give ear, listen. Followed by eat what is good, delight in the richness of the fair. Live, come, listen, live. What do we have to do to buy or to live in the covenant? The cost to be in the covenant is actually the cost of being in the covenant. Doesn't make much sense, really. But the cost is that we have to say, I want my identity to be found as a child of God. I want to find and live in this abundance. I don't want to eat the bread of the world. The irony of this picture is that the beauty and the richness and the abundance of the Covenant, all we have to do to, is to choose to eat it, choose to live in it, which seems so hard for us. We know we are accepted. We know that we have a new primary identity in God. Certainly we know that in our heads, we have to constantly remind ourselves of that, don't we? We are children of God. We are children of God. Our identity is shaped by being children of God. We're invited to live into that freedom, to eat that freedom, to eat that abundance. Isaiah's words here are satisfaction and splendor. Choose to live in that covenant. Choose to live in that abundance. Listen. Come, listen, eat. We're offered the opportunity to live with time and with financial margin because He writes the story, not us. When we move away from the pieces which get in the way of that, we suddenly find ourselves in a different place, living in that space of abundance. Now, child of God is our primary identity, and it defines what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a father, what it means to be a pastor and a counselor, a friend, an intellectual, an athlete, a musician. And you see... The beautiful thing about the title, Child of God, is that it's not something that we have any control over. It's not something we can, do, we can do badly in the sense that we can be less of a child of God. It's not something that we can fail to access. We can't be less of a child of God. Now, of course, in our own minds, We keep on pushing ourselves to that place, but the reality is it was a suffering servant on the cross that earned our place to call ourselves child of God. It was nothing we did, and so we stand there unable to push off that label, despite our shame or despite our pride, despite the terrible places we're in, it's unshakable, and see, When I'm a child of God, and you tell me I'm a crappy father, or a bad pastor, or I'm not a good husband, it doesn't destroy me because my primary identity is not destroyed by my brokenness, or destroyed by my sin, or destroyed by my limitations. You see, my primary identity is child of God, and yes, There are times when I am not the husband or the father or the pastor or the counselor and your feedback is helpful and I can live that out. I can acknowledge my brokenness because you are not threatening the core of who I am, which is child of God. I can live in that abundance. Now we can mess up terribly and he will work it out. He will bring us into splendor. Now that is comforting. Now it doesn't mean that the the brokenness and the sin of this world, are not awful and painful, and it doesn't mean that what we do doesn't have an impact, but there is a promise here that the hills will cry out, that there'll be juniper bushes to eat, that there'll be myrtle for balm. There's a promise here that even the brokenness that we bring into the world, which is horrible and distasteful, as husbands, as parents, as pastors, as counselors, whatever it is, that he will make that right my identity in Christ and my trust in his goodness and his wisdom and his power means that I can mess up terribly and he will work it out. I have a good friend who used to be a youth pastor at a church and whilst he was youth pastor at that church he got involved in some inappropriate online sexual behavior with youth and The police eventually came and raided the church office to take his computers and his phones and his things. And of course, it was an incredible scandal for that congregation and for that church. And he went to prison and he's now out of prison. And he told me, which I'm really touched by, the words of his pastor, the senior pastor, when the police came to take him away Senior pastor said, Okay, this is not good. But don't forget that you're a child of God and nothing can take that away. So he lost. He went to, to school. He studied for three years, a divinity degree, in order to be a pastor. He lost that. Ended up losing his relationship with his spouse because of what happened. He lost a lot of things, but he is still a child of God. He has not lost his identity as child of Christ. Now what about you? For those of you who managed to hold it together pretty well on the outside, are you too proud to fully invest in being a child of God? Are you willing to find your identity just in that and let that influence everything else? Or those of you who are on the backside of that and and the shame, creeps in and you, you see how things are not holding together and, and you aren't living the way you think you should live. Are you able to realize that you can't do anything about that? You are a child of God. Are you willing to trust in the goodness and the wisdom and the power? Are you willing to trust in the work of the suffering servant? Hands up now. Hands up again if you're a child of God. Hands up if you're a child of God. Now I know you. hands up Don't be afraid. Now I know you'll want to pull it down when I say this because the temptation is to think I'm not good enough, I'm not complete enough, I'm not full enough. But how how many of you are willing to say that the work of Christ on the cross is not enough to hold you in the place of being a child of God? Keep your hand up if you don't believe that if you believe that, sorry that was badly worded. (laughs) Hands up if you're a child of God. Take your hands down if you don't think the work of Christ on the cross is enough to hold you there. Then live it out. Live into his abundance. I'm going to close from Psalm 91, what it means to be in the covenant. Now think of this, if you're on the top of the World Trade Center after the planes it hit beneath. Think of this if you're in Ukraine. Think of this as you struggle with identity. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God is in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wing you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrows that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plagues that destroy at midday. I encourage you guys to memorize and learn Psalm 91. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, Help us to realize that the work of your suffering servant is enough. It's all. And that we cannot lose the identity, child of God. And that frees us to live into your abundance, your abundances. Father, parent, as husband, whatever our careers are, as friends, whatever we do. Help us to live into that abundance, find that freedom from the oppression of the not bread of this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.